Good morning and welcome to Jewish Faith and Jewish Facts. The cycle of Torah readings is winding down. This week in synagogues across the world, the Jewish community will be reading from Deuteronomy 26.1 through Deuteronomy 29.8. It will be called in Hebrew, Kitavo. The words Kitavo means when you come. And I want to uh, begin this morning by reading to you a selection from what appears to be Moses' last speech before the Israelites enter the land of Israel. And of course, it will be the last speech that he will offer to the Israelites as he will not be entering the land of Israel. Deuteronomy 26.1. Vahaya ki tavo el ha'aretz, asher, and when you come to the land which God is giving you as a heritage, and you have inherited it and settled it, you shall take of the premier of all fruits of the ground, which you shall bring from the land which the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in the basket. And then the Israelite farmer takes a basket of his first fruits to a priest and recites a brief statement found in Deuteronomy 26.3. I recount today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land which the Lord swore to our ancestors to give to us. The priest then places the basket by the altar as it explains in verse 4, and the farmer continues his declaration by reciting an oral history of Israel. Arami Oved Avi. My father was a wandering Aramean. These few verses from 4 through 8 reappear in the Passover Haggadah, in the evening ceremony of Passover. The recital touches on the period of Egyptian slavery and God's redemption and concludes with the settlement of prosperity of Israel in their land in verse 9. And the farmer then leaves the basket and bows to God. The passage, verse 11, concludes, And you shall rejoice in all the good which the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is in your midst. This verse makes clear that the farmer is the you of the verse. And he must share his bounty. He must express his gratitude with his household, i.e. his wife, his children, and slaves. In addition, as you heard in verse 11, he should share his bounty with people who have none. 
namely the Levites, the lower level of priests who own no land, and the sojourner, the Ger Toshav, the non-Israelites living among the Israelites who own no land. Deuteronomy takes it as given that the Levite and the Ger, not to mention women and slaves, do not have the obligation to bring first fruits. So I want to speak to you this morning about how Bikurim, first fruits, are understood in the Torah and throughout Jewish tradition. The command to bring first fruits is also presented in Exodus, once in the covenant collection and again after the sin of the golden calf in what scholars call the ritual decalogue. It is this verse which gives us the term bikurim for the commandment. Reshit bikure admatcha tavi beit Adonai Elohecha. This is from Exodus 23, 19. You shall bring the premier of the first fruits, which we think of as Bikurim, of your ground to the house of the Lord your God. Although it is possible that here in Exodus, as in Deuteronomy, the text is speaking to landowners, Exodus does not explicitly invoke inheritance, possession, or settlement of the land, nor does it have any verse that indicates the Levite sojourners or even women and slaves should be treated differently, which is the case in Deuteronomy. Moreover, Exodus says nothing about the need to make any declaration which is essential in the Deuteronomic, Deuteronomic quote. These distinctions in presentation were not lost on the ancient rabbis, who struggled to understand why the Torah included two very different iterations of the same mitzvah, of the same commandment. Although sometimes the rabbis dealt with the redundant laws by reading them as complementary, showing how one fills out the other, in the case of Bikurim, the dominant approach was to explain the differences in presentation by dividing the mitzvah, the commandment of Bikurim, into two, bringing the fruit, ha'avat Bikurim, and reciting the declaration, Mikra, Bikurim. The declaration in Deuteronomy begins with the above quote from verse 3, I recount today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land which the Lord swore to our ancestors to give to us. In the preeminent Midrash, biblical commentary on Exodus, the verse is read as excluding certain categories of people. Asher nishba Adonai avotenu, which God swore to our forefathers, the rabbinic commentator says, excludes converts and slaves. Latet lanu, to give to us, so he's breaking down the component Hebrew parts of the verse, 
excludes women, those who are androgynous, and others. The implication, the Midrash says, is that they're excluded from bringing and excluded from reciting, but the verse says, you shall bring. The Midrash suggests that whereas the declaration in Deuteronomy uses exclusive language such as our fathers and gave to us, Exodus, which has no declaration, simply states, you shall bring, implying that this obligation falls upon everybody. The Mechilta de Rav Yishmael, this essential commentary on Exodus, suggests a solution that be, of the tension that exists between the two versions of the mitzvah. So what is the difference between these and those, it asks? These native-born freemen bring and recite, while those non-Israelites and non-males bring but do not recite. Thus, in the Midrash's understanding, Exodus commands everyone to bring Bikurim, but Deuteronomy limits the recitation, Mikrop Bikurim, the recitation, the oath, limits the oath to Israelite-born males. This distinction between bringing the Bikurim and offering a recitation is not in the biblical text. The rabbis are thus forced to artificially grasp this distinction onto a verse that implicitly assumes that Levites, women, and slaves don't bring Bikurim at all. And it quotes, You and the Levite and the sojourner who are in your midst, from here they said that a Jewish mamzer, one unfit to marry into the Jewish people, recites, but Gerim and four slaves do not, since they do not have possession of the land. So the question is, why do the rabbis take this approach? In other words, why do they assume that everyone, and not just Israelite males, bring Bikurim, To do understand that, let's spend a little bit more time understanding Bikurim. The first fruits, Bikurim, in ancient Israel, were a type of offering that was akin to, but distinct from what the Torah calls Trumagadola. While Trumagadola was an agricultural tithe, the first fruits were a sacrificial gift brought up to the altar. The major obligation to bring first fruits, known as Bikurim, to the temple began in the festival of Shavuot. That's the springtime festival that falls 50 days after Passover begins, seven weeks, and has some similarity to the time, the festival of Pentecost, which occurs seven weeks after Easter, and continued until the festival of Sukkot, which is the fall festival. This tithe was limited to the traditional seven agricultural products mentioned in the Torah, wheat, barley, grapes in the form of wine, figs, pomegranates, olives in the form of oil, and dates, 
all of which were grown in the land of Israel. This tithe and the associated festival of Shavuot is legislated in the Torah. By the time of classical antiquity, extensive regulations regarding Bikurim were recorded in the classical rabbinic literature, either the Midrash, Mishnah, or Gomorrah. According to Jewish law, the corner of fields, wild areas, leftovers after harvesting known as gleanings, and unowned crops were not subject to and could not be used as the tithe of first frights. They were intended to be left as charity for the four and other kinds of uh, landless people. Plants from outside Israel were also prohibited from inclusion in the tithe, as was anything belonging to non-Israelites. The rules also specify that each type of product had to be individually tithed. Even if the numbers were balanced so that there was no difference in amount between this situation and using just some types of first fruit as a tithe and retaining others in their entirety. Fruit which was allocated to the tithe could not be swapped for fruit which wasn't. To the extent that wine couldn't be swapped for vinegar and olive oil couldn't be swapped for olives. Furthermore, fruits were not allowed to be individually divided if only part went to the tithe, namely small whole pomegranates had to be used rather than sections from large pomegranates. The separation of tithe produce from untithe produce was subject to supreme and extreme regulation. The individual separating one form from the other had to be ritually clean and had to be included in the best produce in the tithe if a Kohen, a high priest, lived nearby. During the act of separation, the produce was not permitted to be counted out to determine which fell under the tithe, nor to be weighed for that purpose. The pilgrims that brought Bikurim to the temple were obligated to recite a declaration, which in fact is what we've been reading about in this week's Torah portion. So let's go back to this week's Torah portion now that we've explained Bikurim a little bit more extensively. Both priests and Levites appear in the passage of Bikurim in Deuteronomy, but neither offers Bikurim. The priests are those who take the Bikurim from the farver and place it before the altar. And the Levites, namely those who are of the tribe of Levi, but may not necessarily be priests. All priests come from the tribe of Levi, but not all members of the tribe of Levi are priests. And the Levites are landless people with whom farmers share this bounty. Indeed, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 12, Deuteronomy 14, and our Torah portion emphasize their exclusion from inheritance of the land. Thus, Deuteronomy as a book is inherently consistent. However, just as the story in Exodus seems to offer a different understanding of Bikurim, in Numbers 35, 1 through 8, 48 cities and their adjoining pasture lands 
are given to the Levites. And Joshua 21 enumerates them, dividing the land among the Aaronic priests and each of the three Levite clans. You will remember that the Levites are the descendants of Jacob's son Levi. But of course, Jacob's son Levi has children, and there are children from his children. So it's not a direct lineage to Aaron and Moses. This dispute led to a uh, confrontation among the rabbis of the Talmud. Rabbi Yossi says, Rabbi Meir would say that priests bring but do not recite. Namely, they bring the Bikurim, but they do not have to make the declaration. Mikra Bikurim. Since they took no portion in the land, but I, says Rabbi Yossi, say that just as the Levites took a portion in the land, so did the priests take, whether from the greater thing or a lesser thing. The view of Rabbi Yossi is accepted ruling so that the priest Levites are equal for purposes of declaration. What that meant is in the life of the ancient temple, all Israelite men, in spite of what the Torah seemed to suggest, were obligated to not only bring Bikurim first fruits, but to offer the declaration, which you will remember is in 26.3 of Deuteronomy, I recount today to the Lord my God that I have come to the land which God swore to our ancestors to give to us. According, as noted earlier this morning, the rabbis use the term gerim differently than the Bible does. Gerim, for the rabbis, are converts, as opposed to gerim in the Torah, which refers to those who are not Israelites but live among the Israelites. Thus, distinguishing between gerim and Israelites in this case would perpetuate a lineage-based distinction among Jews. According to the second century collection of laws, even if someone's father is a convert, as long as their mother is Jewish, they may recite Mikra Bikurim, since they may legitimately call God the God of our fathers. What's interesting to us today is, of course, that the Torah was patrilineal with regard to descent. We speak about the children of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jewish lineage comes through the father, the sons of Jacob. But by the time of the second century and later, we have matrilineal descent, that it's the mother, the birth mother, who gives status the issue of whether a convert may be called may call Israel God, God of our fathers, is not only relevant to Bikurim, but to many prayers which are recited in the weekly Shabbat and holiday prayer book. This makes the question practical 
for the rabbis and not just theoretical. It's not simply a question of who brings Bikurim. Now, interestingly enough, having gone through that, similarly, the Mishnah moves only halfway. Actual converts, as opposed to those born Jews whose fathers were converts, would still be unable to recite Mikra Bikurim, at least not with the same phrasing as native-born Jews. Nevertheless, already the Midrash to our Torah portion offers a different declaration for converts. That I have come to the land which our Lord swore to our fathers is the original. And the Midrash says this includes converts in bringing and reciting, for it says with regard to Abraham, you shall be the father, in Genesis 17, 5, you shall be the father of multiple of nations. Thus he is the father of the entire world, who entered under the wings of the divine presence, and an oath was sworn to Abraham that his descendants will inherit the land. Also in Deuteronomy 26, 11, you and the Levite and the sojourner in your midst, this is according to the rabbinic interpretation, this includes converts among those who should make the declaration. Now, why this is important throughout Jewish history is given the number of converts who joined the Jewish people in the second century before the... Uh, exile from uh, Judea under Roman hegemony, that there were numbers and numbers of um, converts. The Adumeans were converted under the Hasmonean Empire, and some would have suggested that prior to the first century, nearly a third of the Middle Eastern part of the Roman Empire had converted to Judaism. Well, if that were true and they owned land, then what was their obligation? That's why this is important. Now, in addition to the question of the convert, one group that does not get full inclusion in Mikra Bikurim, in contrast to the Levite priests and converts, is women. But one text cited in the Talmud does bring them a step closer. The text expounds the last verse of the Bikurim passage. And to your house. This teaches us, the Talmud tells us, that a man may bring the first fruits of his wife and recite. The Talmud discusses a case in which the woman and not her husband is the owner of the field. In theory, she should bring the Bikurim, but not recite the declaration. Instead, the Talmud suggests that her husband can recite the declaration for her. Now, if a woman cannot recite upon her own Bikurim, how can her husband do so? In the 14th century, uh, a French commentator wrote, the case is different, different, as it states and to your house. This is no mere illusion, but a biblical decree. Even though the, possess, the husband possesses no land of his own, his wife is like his body. And later on, the rabbis go to great 
length to try and um, offer an understanding of why the husband reciting the blessing, the declaration on behalf of the woman is important. Now, the laws of Bikurim, which I've introduced you to, and the laws related to coming into the land have an even greater impact on our understanding of our relationship to the land of Israel. One would think that these biblical laws in and of themselves uh, are unimportant once the temple is destroyed by the Romans in 70. And often people ask me about the biblical and rabbinic roots of Zionism. Questions such as, is it a commandment to live in Israel? Or haven't Jews always lived in the diaspora? After all, the books from Babylonia, the Talmud and others, seem to be uh, the essence of Judaism. This week's Torah portion opens with a section which I believe addresses all these questions and serves, therefore, as a foundation of religious Zionist thinking. The Jewish tradition considers these verses that I've read to you and the concepts and sentiments contained with them to be so important that it commands every Jewish farmer in Israel, when there were Jewish farmers, to read them every year during a ritual that took place in the temple at at this time of year in the summertime between Shavuot and Sukkot. That festival, that ritual, is the declaration of Bikurim, in which every farmer in Israel was commanded to come every year to Jerusalem with the first fruits he had harvested and present them. And the central element of the ritual is the speech, which you and I have been speaking about this morning. The farmer is commanded to offer... The following, when you have entered the land your Lord, your God is giving you is an inheritance and taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the fruits that all of you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name and say to the priest in office at that time, this is from our Torah portion, I declare today to the Lord, I, God, that I have come to the land that God swore to our ancestors to give us. And then, as I suggested earlier, he recites the verse which is found in Passover about our history, which includes Exodus, and he ends uh, in the Torah portion, and you shall place the basket before the Lord your God and bow down to him. Bikurim is not only an ancient custom, but it is the connection between the Torah, our Torah portion this week, and the Jewish people's eternal connection to the land of Israel. One of the earliest Zionist, religious Zionist statements. For Jewish faith and Jewish facts, I'm Rabbi Stephen Garten. You can hear a rebroadcast of this morning's program as a podcast on iTunes or on chri.ca, the station's website. 
Shalom and have a good day. Behold.